Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. How are you? Just checking in. Um... I think we all hoped that 2021 would be like amazing from the get. And I know I talked about this in a video on my main channel, but it hasn't been amazing. And so I hope that you're taking care of yourself. I hope that you're being safe and all that good stuff. Um, I'm having a difficult time transitioning back into work mode. I just kind of like want to watch television all day and zone out. And I know that's probably just because things are overwhelming. So I'm like, oh, la, la, la. I just want to solve a crime and watch TV. Um, but I'm doing my best to get through all the things and do all the things. And it helps me feel a little bit better and a little bit more productive. And then don't worry, I'm making time for self-care. It's just, it's just a weird, just feels weird, you know, being stuck at home. And I know people are like, you're not stuck at home. You're safe at home. Sure. But I'm also stuck at home. Like I know it's a, I know what they're trying to do. They're like, oh, it's the way you think about it. But I'm like, but the reality is this is weird and I've never done this for that long and not flown for this long. What? Um, so anyways, I hope that all of you out there are taking care of yourselves, doing the things you need and feeling okay. And we'll get through it together, right? So today I have 10 questions just like always. And if you are new, welcome, please share this podcast. Please leave your reviews and things like that. That all really, really helps. But I pull my questions from the community tab on my podcast channel, which is called Opinions That Don't Matter, because that's the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. So the video versions of these podcasts live over on that channel. And in the community tab on the channel page is where I ask for your questions, usually on a Monday, like a Monday morning or early afternoon, I'll uh, ask you. So that is where you can place your questions to get answered. And I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. And I do my best to read through the comments of those ones and add in any extra questions that you may have, because a lot of you are like, well, yes, that's my question, but also, you know, blah, blah. And so I have some of those here today. We had quite a few follow-up questions in those comments below them. So let's get into it. It's like every time I start to talk, my nose itches. And I think, ugh, I think it's because it's like the vibrations of my voice, maybe. Does anybody know? Does anybody know that? Anyway. Okay. Question number one says, hi, Katie. Every time I see my therapist look at the clock, I get nervous that I'm boring her and she's just waiting for the session to finally be over. I know she has to look at the clock, but it makes me feel like I waste her time with useless things that I say. Why do I get so insecure about this and what can I do to stop it? This reminded me of this time when I was in my own session. We don't uh, have in-session meet or person in-person meetings anymore. Everything that I've done with my therapist has been over like uh, FaceTime or I don't know, it's this other weird app. She has me use, I forget the name of it. But anyways, we've done our sessions over that. But I remember this is like years ago when I was in her office and the light was switched on, which if you guys don't know in a therapist's office, a lot of times you sit in the waiting room and you flip a switch and the, this little light, because I am a therapist, I know it's usually around the door. It's a red, red light and it pops on to let you know someone is in the waiting room. And that's how, you know, patients indicate that they're there and waiting. And so I saw this light come on in the middle of my session. I was like, oh my God, I must not have much time left. I should wrap this up. Cause I was like, that must be the next patient. No, I tried to wrap it up. She kept talking. It was very weird. And then I just felt very distracted. It turns out the mailman had left a package for her. Cause I'd mentioned it towards the end. I was like, I noticed your light is on. She's like, oh, the mailman does that. And I was like, oh my God, I should have said that earlier. Cause it's been fucking me up all session. So anyways, that just reminded me of this. And the truth about it is let your therapist know. That's the first thing. And you can say it just like you said it to me. I know that you have to look at the clock, but I just struggle. I feel like then I'm wasting your time or something. And they might work with you. Like my first thought for this is, oh, if you told me this, then I would just set a timer on my phone. And when the timer went off, we'd know our session was over. I would just do that and be like, are you okay with that? Obviously, I'd want you to say, yes, I'm okay with that. But I'm just saying there could be other ways that we keep track so that I don't have to look at the clock. You don't have to see me look at the clock and we can just get rid of that altogether. But 
why, answering the question, why do I get so insecure about this? There are a couple things. The first thing is just, I would guesstimate my hypothesis would be that this is how you talk to yourself all the time. Like there's a lot of other situations in which you say, you know, I'm wasting someone's time or I'm not good enough. I'm not important enough. uh, I'm not worthy. I don't belong. Like you might feel that in a lot of other ways. And so I know you knew this was coming, but you're going to have to recognize the shitty things you're saying to yourself. And I want you to argue back with some healthy bridge statements. Like it's possible that my therapist is just making sure we don't run over time so that her whole day isn't messed up and it actually doesn't have anything to do with what I'm saying what I'm saying. Or it's possible that what I'm saying isn't completely useless. She's just making sure that she's on point and isn't going to forget to give me the homework that she just, you know, wants to get me or whatever. There's a million things that it's possible or maybe or I could be interpreting this wrong. There's a lot of different things that you can say. Um that's what I would encourage you to do because really the why is insecurity within yourself, which obviously, I mean, there's lots of reasons why we're in therapy, right? Like that's why you're in therapy. Um, but we're going to have to like challenge that with some more balanced thinking. Again, it doesn't have to be just completely positive. That's why I said bridge statements, those statements that kind of, you know, pull us from a negativity or shit talking island and move us into a happier, more healthy place. We are going to need to build a bridge to get us there. So we don't have to just think positive and be like, no, 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 she's not looking to clock, I'm important, or we force ourselves to think something we don't believe, but we can challenge those thoughts to get it into like kind of in the middle place, which I would call more balance, which could be something like, it's possible that she's bored with what I'm saying, but it's equally as possible that she's just making sure that we're on time. And I think that's a fair balance statement, you know, um, but bring it up with your therapist, see if there's something that you can do. And don't allow those nasty negative thoughts to just live in your head rent free. Pay attention to them, take note of them, and try to move them into a more balanced and reasonable place. And you can also check your facts. That's another tool before I wrap this one up to get you to come up with a bridge statement or maybe challenge some of those thoughts. It can help if we just check our facts. Like, do you have any facts to support that that what you're saying is useless? Has she ever told you that you've wasted her time? Probably not. And if she did, she's a terrible therapist. But if you don't have any evidence to support that, then we're going to have to let that go and, and see what the evidence actually points us toward. Okay. But keep me posted. And I hope that helps. And it, it, I only mentioned my own story just to let you know that it's very normal for us to get distracted and to think I was like, oh, shit, I'm running behind. I'm a little, you know, I didn't feel like I'd been in there that long. And as a therapist, I almost have like a 50 minute internal clock where I kind of know it's been about an hour, but I didn't. And I was like, oh, but that wasn't it at all. And I should have said something earlier. Okay. Moving on to question number two says, hello, Katie, hope you're taking care of yourself. I'm doing my best. Thank you. As someone who has always had suicidal ideation and just a general feeling of not wanting to exist, how do you talk honestly and openly about it with a therapist without being put in a facility or put on suicide watch? And there's a bunch of follow-up questions to this that came from the comments. So I want to address this first component first, because this is really the meat of the question. Now, the best way First of all, I want to preface this by saying that I do recognize that over the years, as I've been in different, uh, we like peer groups, I guess uh, we call it. A, one of them's a journal club. One's um, peer supervision, we call it. And these different groups that I've been a part of are all different mental health professionals, from psychiatrists to psychologists. I think I've told you guys about this in the past. But each month we get together for about an hour and we talk about difficult cases or new research that we've found and ask people's feedback. And, you know, it's just a time for us all to to get some perspective, right? So, and some support. I know based on those conversations that I am more understanding of suicidal ideation than other people in my field. Meaning I might, I don't even want to call it tolerate it, but I might allow it to exist for you without putting you on suicide watch or in a facility a little bit longer than maybe someone else would. But every clinician is different. And I just want to throw that out there because my my take might be a little bit different. Okay. 
and know that you can ask your therapist before you even share anything. You can ask your therapist, like, if I did have suicidal thoughts and just say, tell them, like, you could even just say something to the effect of, you know, I was listening to this crazy uh, therapist on YouTube who shares stuff and she was talking about, uh, you know, having to 5150 people, you know, say that and say, I was just curious, at what point do you have to? Like, what if I just had thoughts of suicide? You can't 5150 uh, someone for that, could you? And just ask, be curious, let them tell you what their policies are and where they draw the line between something they can manage on the outpatient basis and something that may require a higher level of care or maybe you need hospitalization to keep you safe. So you could ask, and I think that's a great thing to do just to be sure. But as far as my opinion goes, the best way to ensure that suicidal ideation is something that can be talked about openly and honestly in therapy while at the same time keeping you out of the hospital is to let them know that you don't have the means, you don't have a plan, you're not going to do it anytime soon, but you have thoughts about it. And a lot of people, because there's a, there was a question on the end of this, like people just think of suicide as a way to comfort themselves. Like the thought of suicide is accompanied, it says, is accompanied me for such a long time that it is almost a routine and I can't stop thinking about it, although I don't want to act on it. That's the thing that you tell them is something to the effect of like, because in my experience, suicidal thoughts are just a, a way out, like a it's almost a security thing, which I know might sound very strange to people who haven't experienced suicidal thoughts at all. But just knowing that you could get out that there is a potential like end in sight or a way to end the pain and suffering can be kind of soothing or comforting in some way. Even though we're not going to do it, just knowing that we could can be something that feels good. I know that might sound strange, but it's it, in my experience, that's very true. And so let's get into the meat of this. You talk, talking to your therapist about it would be, you could tell them that you just have this general feeling of not wanting to exist. You don't have the means to do it. You don't have a plan and you're not going to do it anytime soon. However, you just have these thoughts and they've been around for a long time and you just would like them to go away. Like you need help with those thoughts. Okay. Just like faulty thinking in the same way, the first person who the first question where they said, you know, they feel like they're wasting their therapist's time and they feel useless. Those are just as much a false thought or false belief about yourself as those constant suicidal ideations and feeling like I just don't want to be here. Right. So they all should be talked about in therapy. And that's how I would bring it up. And those are the things that I would say out the gate is like, I don't have the means. I don't have a plan. It's not going to happen anytime soon. However, I'm struggling with this. Okay. And then the next component of the question in the comment below said also, how can you know whether your suicidal ideation warrants a therapy session? Is it always is it always because it's an upsetting feeling or only if it poses a certain risk? I think if we're struggling with any thoughts of suicide or ending our life, we do need to seek therapy, period. It doesn't have to be a serious thought. We don't have to have a plan of action. Any, If we've thought of ending our life, I believe you can benefit from therapy because the great thing about therapy is that we get to talk out all that we're feeling, get support and understanding and some tools to make it better. And if we can make those feelings go away, or if we can generally remind us that there's good people out there and that there is hope, if there are some things that we can grow and develop through therapy, which I've seen happen over time and time again, I think that we should seek that out. We should reach out. So please reach out. Do not wait. Thoughts are just as serious as any other thought and they all deserve any other false thought, I guess is what I should say. And they all deserve some therapeutic support. And so please reach out. Don't wait. Um, and then someone asked another question. See, there were lots of com comments on this and says also uh, for minors, how serious does it have to be for the therapist to tell your parents again? Ugh, sorry, my nose. I tell you something about this always makes it itch. Um, Okay, so also for minors, how serious does it have to be for a therapist to tell your parents? And do you need to have a plan or actively be considering it for them to tell? Or will they tell if you just have thoughts? I would not tell them if you just have thoughts. However, again, going back to what I said at the beginning, I would ask your therapist. So if you're a minor, I would ask your therapist like, hey, because confidentiality is important to me, what are you going to tell my parents? And then I would also have kind of a verbal agreement between you and your therapist that they will talk to you and let you know before they go telling your parents things. 
I do that with my patients, but I recognize from much of the conversation I've had with you guys in the comments and stuff like that, that that's not always the case. So bring it up, talk about it, let them know you're, you know, you have concerns and you want to make sure that they're not just going to go telling your parents something without you knowing, and then you come home to like a bomb being dropped on you. Um, they should be fine with that. I would to only tell parents if there was something they need to look out for. Like, for instance, my levels of safety and security when it comes to my patients who are struggling with these types of thoughts is to first uh, assess if there's a the means, if the threat is imminent, if they have a plan, all that stuff. If the answer, let's say, is uh, somewhat yes, there's no maybe threat that's imminent, but they have some, they have the means. Then I would talk to them and create a safety plan between us and say, I would like you to sign this. And it's usually like, I promise to not harm myself until I, I contact and get a hold of Katie, right? Something like that. And then I would, if it, that wasn't working, if it was still a struggle and I saw them usually increase sessions to maybe twice a week, but then I might text in between sessions. I'm gonna do these text check-ins. If I don't hear from you in 24 hours, once or you know maybe three hours or whatever it is, when, when I call or text you, I am going to call your home, like your parents' home, you know, and there are different things, different steps and levels that we would go to. And then if I still don't hear from you, if I tried the home and nobody picks up, I'm going to have to call your parents. You know, there would be these different levels and they're different for every person depending on living situation and age and all of that. But that's kind of how it works. And so ask your therapist about that. Ask, you know, what are the reasons that you would tell my parents something and could you please let me know if you're going to tell them something because I'd rather know ahead of time. And that's fair. And also you are the patient. You hold the confidentiality, even though you're a minor, a therapist can't just go about sharing whatever they want with anyone when you're a minor. That's not really how it works. There are still, even though there aren't as many legal things holding us like from sharing, there are a lot of ethical principles and ethical things that hold us accountable, if that makes sense. Okay, so that is that telling your parents. And then I talked about the comfort and the routine of it. I think, yeah, I think that's it. If you are out there and you are struggling with any kind of suicidal thoughts, that's what they, the person means by suicidal ideation. It's when you just have thoughts about it. Please reach out for help. You're not alone. There are some resources and tools thought-stopping techniques, uh, other different therapeutic uh, resources that can assist you in finding some glimmer of hope again and snuffing out those thoughts. So please reach out, please speak up. It does get better, okay? Now, question number three says, hi, Katie, what is the best way to stop extreme nervousness before a Zoom call or any social interaction? I always think the that the worst can happen. And I try to expose myself to these situations, but still feel the same. I thought this was a great question. And it's that the the thing that's interesting about anxiety and this nervous, like social anxiety, which is really what this is, because Zoom calls are social interactions. So what you're struggling with is social anxiety or social phobia. I have videos about that on YouTube. You can just get onto YouTube and type in Katie Morton social anxiety, and they should all come up. But the best way to stop this is to, there's a couple of things. Number one is thought stop. Now, if we are having, you're thinking the worst can happen, okay? So maybe our brain is spiraling into like pit of despair, like, oh my God, my life's going to be over there. I'm going to, I'm going to be on the Zoom call and I'm going to say something stupid or I'm going to burp or fart or embarrass myself. Oh no. And we're like, oh, spiraling. We have to say, stop, 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 stop. We have to stop those thoughts. And then pull our brain another direction. Like, oh my God, remember that amazing day when I was um, at the beach with my friends and we were doing blah, 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 and it was wonderful. Or remember that wonderful day I had to myself where I went for a walk and then I pet that adorable dog and then went into the store. You know, whatever is a wonderful, happy memory, I want you to pull your brain into it. Or you can even tell me the things that you want to get done that day. Like, what are the things that I need to do? Okay, maybe I need to clean my house and do that laundry. And then I also, oh, I'm going to make something for dinner tonight. It's gonna be yummy. Whatever it is to distract yourself from those worry thoughts, do it. It can really, really help. And then another way to, to stop that is to recognize the worry thoughts and let them play out, play it to the end. That's one of the tools that recent, more recently I've been talking about because 
it can alleviate some of, because anxiety tends to build this big imaginative monster, right? It builds this big fear, especially social anxiety, because we worry that we're going to embarrass ourselves or someone's not going to like us or something's going to happen, right? Something bad, it's going to be bad. And we build it into this big icky monster. But if we play it out, if we're like, okay, let's say I get on the Zoom call, let's say it doesn't go well, what would that look like? Okay, let's say I do, it is embarrassing and someone laughed at me. Well, then what? Okay, well, then let's say that then I also, uh, I don't know, I didn't realize my shirt is see-through. Uh, you know, play it out. What's going to happen? Tell me what you're worried about. What would actually, and then what? And then what? And then what? Every time you have something, you know, quote unquote, embarrassing or scary or bad that could happen, if that happened, then what? I want you to play it out. This doesn't work all the time because sometimes we we have answers for all of it and it just is worse and worse and we spiral. But for some of us, we realize, oh, I guess it's, it's not that bad. Like that is, those are my close friends and they probably wouldn't tell anybody. Like if we're just checking the facts and being honest with ourselves, what would happen? And then what, then what, then what, until we played it all the way out, okay? And then the exposure is helpful. But I think the components, this is my third and final tip when it comes to this. The, the exposure is good, and I'm glad that you're still doing it. Because when we remove ourselves from anxiety-producing situations, our anxiety actually doesn't get better. It gets, or doesn't, like, improve. It gets stronger. Because we've proven to our brain that that type of thing is is scary and deserves to be avoided. And so our world starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller as our anxiety wins and gets stronger, stronger, stronger. So the fact that you're still exposing yourself to it, even though it's uncomfortable, I give you 10 out of 10 gold stars. Amazing. So keep doing that. However, I think the component that we're missing is the soothing component. So as we expose ourselves to something that's that's triggering, it overwhelms our system and we start to get more and more anxious. And we can, if if you struggle with panic attacks, it could cause, pull us into a panic attack. It may just make us super uncomfortable. We get really sweaty. Uh, our heart races. We have lots of worry thoughts. Maybe we space out or someone says something and we can't come up with an answer. You know, we don't, we can't interact the way we want to. A bunch of different things can happen. But while we do that exposure, we need to have a way to calm ourselves so that that doesn't happen, so that we're proving it's actually okay to do the thing. Does that make sense? So it's like, before you even expose yourself and do one of these things, I would encourage you to find things that feel good and calming. This could be a a warm bubble bath. You could be like massaging your hand. You could do like a full body shake. You know, I've talked about that, getting that stuff off and out and that energy out of your fingertips and off your legs. Um, We could do that. We could wrap ourselves up in a weighted blanket or getting cozy clothes or maybe just brushing our hair helps or maybe having a fidget toy helps. I don't know what it is, but find some things that help you feel calm and okay and make sure that you have those things available. And then I want you to just imagine, we start with imagination. I imagine that I'm going to do this thing that's anxiety provoking and stressful. I, f- I can see myself you know, signing in and clicking on the camera, imagine yourself doing it and then calm yourself down. Imagine you're doing more of it and then calm yourself down. And I want you to do this little by little until we actually do it and use the tools in the moment with people. And so that that's my best advice because just exposing isn't enough. We need to also calm our system down because what we're trying to prove to our brain and nervous system is that this thing that we have worried about and thought is going to be super scary or embarrassing or whatever really isn't. And I've proven it to you time and time again through behavior, through doing it, breathing, and I'm okay. I survived, right? And so that's you're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing, but also add in that level of what we call like resources or self-soothing behaviors and uh, tools. And that hopefully will help you feel the same or feel better. I was just reading the same, still feel the same um, at the end of the question. What I wanted to say also is if you're looking for coping skills or you're looking for ways to manage, I have a video you can just get on YouTube and put in Katie Morton, 25 coping skills and it should pop up. And there are tons and tons of others. If you don't like the ones I mentioned in the video, the comments are filled with them as well. So I hope that that helps. Cool? Cool. Okay. Moving on to question number four. Says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Has any of your clients ever had a panic attack during a session? And if so, what did you do about it in the moment? Yes, I've had patients dissociate, have panic attacks, all sorts of things. Um, What usually what you do, and as you get to know your patients more, I don't know. The thing is, it's tricky is most of the patients that I'm like, yep, 
that happened, I've been working with them for a while, like at least six months, let's say. And so I knew them well enough to know when something wasn't quite right. If it was like a first session or second session, I may miss it. And I'm just putting that out there so that if any of you are new in therapy, you're like, well, they didn't even notice that I was dissociating. They may just not know you well enough yet. Because as I get kind of a baseline for my patients of like how much eye contact they make, how much fidgeting they normally do, uh, how do they usually like how communicative are they? All of that stuff is kind of important. And then I'll notice if things have changed, like if they can't make eye contact, they space out, like that's what dissociation usually does. We kind of space, um, or they struggle to even look at me. Even if they can move their eyes around, they like avoid my area where I am in the room. And so anyways, I say all of that to say that we kind of recognize the baseline. And once we've had that, then we'll notice if something has changed or if something is different. And so a therapist then usually will notice right away as you as it builds up. I, I I won't say that I've always noticed it before it's happening, but I'll notice when it's getting really like I can feel it. And usually I do some grounding techniques and some mantras I'll say with them or some guided like it's not necessarily guided meditation, but it's it's guided self-soothing, I guess, which you could call meditation. But it'd be something to the effect of I'd start off by saying, um, you know, okay, let's say my patient's name is Sarah, I'd say like, Sarah, I've noticed I'm noticing some anxiety, I'm noticing some build, are you feeling that? And sometimes people will be able to not sometimes they're already gone, right? We could be like already spaced out, maybe already dissociating because it's so overwhelming. Um, I noticed that could you can you count your colors? Can you see colors? If they're still not verbal, I might say, okay, listen to my voice as we work our way through our body. I'll do some like progressive relaxation, or I'll just talk them through my own grounding techniques. I'll say like, I can feel my sweater on my shoulders, or I can feel my bracelet on my wrist, or I feel my my bottom and back against a chair. Do you feel that on your side? Just feel it. I can feel the weight, you know, and I'll go through things. Or um, I'm sometimes I also you know, I can ask a patient, this depends on the patient, but sometimes I'll say, you know, would you like me to come sit over there with you? Or, and this is also something I would usually talk to with a patient if they struggle with panic attacks or dissociations. Do they want me closer? Do they want me farther? What is usually comfortable so that I don't breach that, you know, in a time of panic? Uh, some people want you to be close and like rub their back. Some people want you to stay far, far away. Sometimes I've had a patient uh, who want me to put a blanket on her. So if I saw her getting a little overwhelmed, I'd be like, I'm going to get the blanket. Do you want the blanket? And she would just nod and I would put that on her. So there can be a lot of different things that we can do to kind of help bring you back. But I try to just talk a lot, <laughs> which it's funny because in therapy, other than maybe the first a couple appointments, a therapist doesn't talk as much. Like we ask more questions and you spend more time talking to us. But the first few appointments I only say are different because we're explaining our policies and have a lot of questions for you. So it's it's more like, you know, have you been in therapy before? All this stuff, I'm asking more questions. So I'm talking a little bit more. But when a patient is feeling overwhelmed and going into potentially panic attack or dissociation, we talk or I personally talk a lot more to try to keep you here, try to calm you down. And so some I could say some of those mantras like you're going to be okay, we're going to get through this. And that that could be part of it too, along with like the progressive relaxation or asking, you know, do you can count colors or can you make eye contact with me? I do all sorts of things like that just to try to bring you back, try to help you know you're going to be okay. Um, sometimes I've even said things like, this won't last forever. We will get through this, you know, even with facts sometimes like panic attacks usually last an average of three minutes. So if we've already been in it for about 30 seconds, we're getting there, we'll, you know, before you know, it, we'll be all over halfway done, all those types of things, anything to kind of help us manage and know that we'll get through it. And it kind of just comes with knowing your patients better. This like, you can intervene sooner as a therapist, the better you know your patient. Okay. Question number five. Oh, and before, sorry, before I go into question number five, I just want to say that those things are very common. So don't be worried that a therapist won't understand or won't know how to deal. I just want to let you know that if they don't know you that well, they may not recognize it. So oftentimes we still do because we're very good at reading people and body language and they, they may notice, but I just want you to know that don't think your therapist is not doing their job or is bad at their job. If you've only had a couple of sessions and something like this happens and they don't catch it because we're, we're not perfect. We're humans too. And if we don't know how you normally are, we're not going to know 
when you're more elevated in anxiety or dissociation, right? Because we don't really have that baseline. Okay. Question number five says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. How can I stop believing I have nothing interesting to say or contribute to a conversation? Hmm. I find myself wanting to say something in response to a person, but before I can say it, my mind starts to worry about how the other person will react or if it's stupid or if the person will judge me. Hmm. I usually just decide to not say anything at all. How can I let go of this worry? It makes me uncomfortable when there is silence because I'm not saying anything and it ends up reinforcing the belief that I have nothing of value to contribute, It's a t- which is a terrible cycle. Thanks. This is a great question. And I, I know that you're probably not going to like this answer, but the truth is we're going to have to work on your self-confidence, which involves self-talk. That's a huge component. I know I, I, I know that I mention this all the time and it's kind of exhausting, but I just want you to know that the way you talk to yourself becomes the way that you speak to the world. And so it's really important that we have a nice conversation with ourselves, that we offer compassion and understanding and we don't just shit talk and trash everything that we've done and make ourselves feel like dirt. Pay attention to those things. Do Use those bridge statements. Try to come into more balanced thought patterns versus just... I'm terrible. I have nothing to good to contribute. I'm so stupid. No one likes me. Whatever you've told yourself, I want you to challenge those thoughts. Bring it into a more neutral, balanced area. Okay, that's one. Then second, in uh, dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, we talk a lot about building mastery, which is essentially just getting good at something. And that helps build confidence. And it helps build resilience as a result. And so if we can spend some time getting good at one thing, hopefully that will help you feel a little bit better and stop second guessing yourself so much in conversation. So this could be anything from maybe we start writing a little bit. Maybe we're good at that. Maybe we start reading books out loud. Maybe we're really good at that. Maybe we start just having, you know, uh, short conversations with close people so that we know we can, you know, it's like our mom or someone, a really good friend, sister, brother, someone you talk to a lot, maybe it's a roommate, so that we can kind of build that up and start to feel a little better. Maybe it's guitar, maybe it's singing. I don't care what it is. I want you to try to work on something and get good at it. So you start to feel better about yourself. And then another thing that I want you to do is when we talk about building self-confidence, I had a video not too long ago that went out that was, I I mentioned the importance of like putting good out into the world and being positive about other people. And that does rub rub off on us and that can help build confidence. But when it comes to this particular question, I think I would use that in a new way where when you think back to the last conversation where you're like, I just feel stupid and there was silence and I'm not saying anything and I want you to think back to that. And I want you to think about the other people and I want you to consider your thoughts about them. Like, were you judging everything that they said? Did you think that they were stupid or had nothing important to contribute? What were your thoughts? Because chances are you didn't even think about them at all. And then what does that tell us? That they probably weren't thinking about you at all. And they weren't judging what you said or didn't say. Just consider, consider their perspective. And then also, I think, you know, be patient as you try this. It's hard. We're breaking a pattern. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to say some things and then your anxiety is going to want to take it and turn it into like a wound or not really a wound, but it's going to want to hurt you with it. Where it's like, you said stupid things. You, you know, you waited for them to talk too long and then it got awkward and the conversation spiral. You're going to try to shit talk yourself. And then we're going to go back to the self-talk and we're going to say, you know what? I was doing the best I could. I was just, I was trying something new and it's uncomfortable and that's okay. I can sit in the discomfort just trying something new, right? So those are just some of the ways to get that going. It's very common. Uh, Reminded me of maybe I just guys reminded me of myself a lot in these questions. But I remember I went to so back in the day, if you guys don't know, it was back in like, I don't even know, we started the channel in 2011, maybe 2013. 2014, I had thought for a while that I would like to create an app, like a mental health app that had some like tools and resources and like a little, you know, light that went like this to help you breathe, do four by four breathing. I wanted to create all this shit, but you know me, I don't know technology. I can't create an app. That's not going to work. And so I went to this breakfast event at this local uh, VC venture capital, like a funding place to meet some people. 
And my friend before I went, who's in that world was like, talk to as many people as you can and just wait patiently and have conversations with all these people and blah, 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 blah. So I go to this breakfast and I talk with all sorts of people and I go by myself because I couldn't bring Sean. He had to work that day and it was just complicated. So I don't like going by myself, but I did it. I put on my business dress and I went to this breakfast and I stood around (laughs) trying to break into conversations like an awkward person, you know, where you just stand there and you're like, please acknowledge me and bring me into a conversation. And most people, it happened quickly. I stood there. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. I'm Katie. You know, introduce blah, blah, blah. There's this one instance that's like burned in my brain where I stood there and neither of the people, there were two people talking. They were just like on the cusp of where I was talking with other people. I just switched groups and stood there. Then they looked at me and said nothing and went back to talking. I stood there for a few more minutes or not minutes, it felt like it felt like hours, but it was probably like seconds. And then I tried to introduce myself and they were really rude and then walked away. And I was like, oh, I guess I don't, I must've made them uncomfortable. Oh. And I had this whole thought process about it, about what that said about me. And then I'm socially awkward and I don't know how to talk to people. And I recognized it for what it was, a weird situation with weird people that if I check my facts had nothing really to do with me. I actually hadn't acted in a strange way. I had done what I had done already that whole morning and had no issue. I'd talked to a lot of other people and it was perfectly fine. Something was going on. And I just want you to, I only tell that story because so often we think it's about us and we think people are going to judge us and we think that we made a stupid comment or said a stupid thing and it actually has nothing to do with us. And that person's just mad because their roommate yelled at them on the way out the door or their kid threw up in the car on the way to school. And they had to clean. You know, there's so many other things going on in other people's lives that we cannot account for because we don't know them. And just considering that always helps keep things in perspective for me and stop me from spiraling. Because if, we, if I check my facts and if you check your facts, the truth is we don't have all the facts. And most of how people interact with the world has nothing to do with this one interaction. It has a lot to do with the 99.9% of stuff that happened before we saw them. So just keep that in mind. I know, um, I know it's tricky, but hopefully, hopefully at least that reminds you, A, you're not alone and B, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with you. So put it out there. You've got things to say. People want to hear you. We have to start talking to ourselves that way. Cool. Cool. Okay. Question number six. How do I stop placing judgment on going through my own stuff while in school to become a therapist? Every time I have a bad mental health day, I think to myself, how am I supposed to help others when I don't even have myself figured out? My therapist continues to remind me that I am human too, but I still can't seem to shake the fact that I need to have my life put together before I start practicing. Is this because of some kind of ideal that that I have that therapists are perfect? Maybe. Maybe it's an an internalized wish that my therapist has it all together. I don't know. What do you think? Thanks for your podcast. I truly believe it's teaching me so much about the field of mental health counseling. I'm so glad. This is a great question. And the truth about it, and I want to reframe this for you, is we all go through our own stuff. Therapists are human. And even if you had all your shit together and all your stuff figured out before you started practicing, life still happens. When we start practicing, we don't just like enter this little bubble where we're like, I am so perfect. I have all the right things to say. I don't have any bad relationships. I don't have any toxic traits. That's just not how life is. Life happens. We have zero control over other people. And a lot of things in our life and situations, like for instance, I uh, had to leave one of my jobs over the years because they wouldn't give me a raise and the amount that they wanted to pay me, I think it was like $14 wasn't enough for me to live on. So I had to quit and leave like that, even though I technically made that choice and took that control, that was a very stressful time for me because money was, you know, like I was still able to practice as a therapist, but things out of my control forced me to have to, you know, I'm just, I know that might not even make any sense, but what I'm just saying is that like, we're humans, life no matter how much we get our shit together, life still happens to us and with us. And what I would hope that you would gain, not only through your education, but also through your own therapy work, are resources and tools to better manage it. And then here's the cool thing. Then you use your own knowledge of what it feels like and what you've experienced to better help your patients. 
No, that doesn't mean you share your whole life story and dump it all on them. It's not your therapy. That's what you go to therapy for. But they don't have to know that the reason that you just perfectly described a panic attack is because you've had one. They don't have to know that the reason that you've talked about that narcissistic parent so much is because you have one in your family. That's not important. What is important is that you use these these tough, rough patches and these struggles that that make you human and that have been difficult in your life. We use all of that experience to make you a better therapist, to make you more relatable, to help you have empathy for people and help them feel heard and understood. That's being a great therapist because being a good therapist is, oh, I understand, you know, different forms of therapy and I stay on track with my patients and I have healthy boundaries. All that makes you a good therapist. What makes you a great therapist is when you can help them feel heard and understood and you can hold all of that for them in a space that just is filled with with empathy and then comes the resources, right? It's like we're moving from just applying the books and what we learned in school. Instead, we're utilizing human experience and human interaction. And that's what makes therapy magical. And that's what makes you into a great therapist. And so I would reframe this and say, you know, I'm going through my own shit. And I'm human too. And this helps me become a great therapist, because now I can have more empathy for my patients when they have bad mental health days, or when they go through these struggles, or when they're having a difficult time figuring out why they do the thing that they do. All of this is important. Also recognizing what it's like for your therapist to tell you about it and to offer assistance to you and tools. Like, how are you receiving that? And does that teach you a little bit about how you'd like to offer it to your patients? Being in therapy makes you a better therapist than not being in therapy. And going through your own shit as long as it's managed. So there are some boundaries I want to put around this where it's like, if let's say we're struggling with drug addiction so much so that we don't know if we can show up sober for our patients, then experience does not make you a better therapist. It's actually impairing you. So if if your struggles are impairing your ability to function so much so that you truly cannot show up 100% for your patients, then I may take a break from that, from, from actually going to school and trying to become a therapist so that you can get that shit together and, and managed before But other than that, we all have ups and downs. We all have stressful lives. And I try to take that as just yet another therapy book that I need to uh, acknowledge and reference so that I can become better for my patients going forward. And just try to think of it that way, because that's really what it is. And it might also be, you might be a little bit of a perfectionist, I'm just hypothesizing here, but nobody has all their shit together, FYI. A lot of us are just better at pretending, okay? <clears throat> Question number seven says, hey, Katie, what are your thoughts on, adult, uh, on adults seeking therapy who are suicidal as children? Not self-harming necessarily, just wanting to no longer be alive. It feels like such an impressionable age to be feeling such deep feelings of hopelessness and wondered what your perspective was on trying to deal with that as an adult. And I had two questions that were asked in the comments below this on top of it. So the truth about this is, my thoughts are, I wish someone had got you into therapy earlier, but it's never too late. And I think the truth about the suicidal thoughts is that it's probably a a habit now. It's a go-to resource for soothing, for comfort. Like I talked about, I think it was like question number two, is that if, if we're trying to soothe with that, and that's what we've done since we were a child, we've never learned better, healthier ways to cope. So it's like breaking a habit or, or breaking a pattern and, and trying something new. And I think that it's totally doable and totally, you know, over, it's totally something you can overcome and work through. Um, I'm trying to think of what other questions, what are your thoughts? So, and I, I think that I'm sorry that you had such deep hopelessness, you know, as a kid so much so that you wish to not be there. But I think there is something important to recognize about it. And this was kind of lean into like the treatment of this. But I think there is something important to recognize about child us, because we all have an inner child, whether you want to admit it or not, it doesn't matter if we've had trauma or abuse in our past, we all have an inner child. I have an inner child, you have an inner child, 
And so often our child is just scared. They're scared because as children, we don't have as much power. We don't have as many resources. Potentially, we feel like we have none of either of those things. We're dependent on other people to help keep us safe and and keep us fed and, you know, get our basic needs met. And we often don't hug or console that child and just talk to it. You know, sometimes it's okay to kind of talk like a child out loud, even if you're an adult you talk like a child, talk through that child. Like that child might say, I don't want to, this is stupid. I feel mad. Or the child might cry and feel very vulnerable and scared. And then we, you know, we can, you can write this in letters of talking. It makes you feel a little crazy. But when you write it in letters and write from adult you back to that child, once that child has had a voice and can talk to adult you, like, where were you, you know, our mom's the worst. And why didn't this happen? Or why did you do this? Or, you know, that one time, uh, we got that ticket from that police officer, because it doesn't always have to be trauma related. I was scared. And I thought something bad had happened, you know, whatever it is, I don't know. But we need to get better at keeping in touch with that child of us and being playful and Also being the adult and coming to that conversation and telling the child that we are strong now, reminding ourselves, I am an adult, I can protect myself, I can take care of myself, and things can and will get better. And I get to decide that, right? There's something really empowering and like healing about that. And I know it's hard, but I think that that inner child work, that's why I said this will get into the treatment of it, is doing some of that inner child work, even just writing letters back and forth from child you who just didn't want to be there to adult you and back and forth can be really, really helpful and really healing. But one of the comments below this question was also, Katie, do you have any advice for unlearning thought patterns that you may have learned as a child from being suicidal at such a young age? Yes. Honestly, thought patterns are just it's just like, like thoughts are just thoughts. Thoughts are not facts. And these patterns are things that can be broken, but we have to try something different. And what it really means is we just have to mentally fight it and mentally move it little by little into a healthier place. So when we think, I don't even want to be here, I should just end it or whatever those kinds of passive or maybe more aggressive thoughts are, we have to recognize them and call them out. Sometimes it can help to call them out and be like, these are those old patterns I don't want. I don't want you. You're not helpful. What is helpful? You know what's helpful? It's helpful for me instead to think today was kind of a bad day and I feel mad. And here's why I feel that way. And we try to vent it because the reason that we go to this, like, I just want to end it or these passive thoughts that kind of feel comfortable and like uh, soothing in some way, right? We go there because that's the only way we know how to express what we feel and to cope. And so we have to do something different that gives us that same release. Does that make sense? And so that's why those coping skills are really important. And that's why it could be really helpful to, to talk to yourself like that and be like, okay, well, I know today I'm actually just really sad. And here's why I'm sad is this is what happened. We have to get better at like expressing what we're feeling each and every day and what we're going through and acknowledging the, the good or bad feelings we have and why that's leading us to think this way. And once we've done that, I really think we'll break out of that pattern, but it's, I know it's tedious. I know it takes time, but be patient with yourself because it does get easier as you do it. And maybe your goal would be just to do one a day and, you know, you can take weekends off or something, but I think that that will really, really help. And then the final part of this question in the comments said, yes, exclamation point, what, uh, and what has to happen to make a child suicidal? Is it always because of the parents? I know parents get a bad rep and some of them, well, I would hope all parents do the best they can, but the best that some parents can do is just frankly shitty and not good at all. So I think in order for a child to feel suicidal, it isn't always because of the parents. It could be bullying at school and the parents are doing their best to try to navigate that. And like, trust me, you guys, I can't even tell you, I don't see a lot of children, but I've, I've seen a few and I've dealt Every time I see a child that is under 18 that is still in school, I haven't seen any of this in college as much, but in middle school and in high school, sweet Jesus, there's always bullying. And it's always a fight to try to figure out how to navigate that. Because I go to the school and I advocate and I say, you know, and shit doesn't get done. And people are like, oh, just tell him to ignore them. And I'm like, he's been doing that for two years. You know, I just get really frustrated. And I'm like, you know, your response isn't adequate. But anyway, um, 
so it's not always the parents. I'm just offering up bullying as another example. And it could be a lot of different things. Also, it could be sometimes we're more predisposed for dep- uh, to be depressed and to, ha- to have suicidal thoughts. Maybe it's in our genetics and we had something scary happen to us that triggered that and turned on that gene. And now we feel that way because it doesn't always have a direct cause. It's not always like parents act shitty, child feels shitty. That happens a lot of the time. I'm not, inv- hopefully you don't think that I'm invalidating that. I'm just giving you other options. So there could be, I think, there could be a lot of different reasons. So no, it's not always because of the parents, but what has to happen to make a child feel suicidal? I think if you guys can correct me in the comments, but I, I believe that anybody, any human considers suicide when things feel hopeless and there's this sense of out of control without any tools or ways to stop, right? To stop it. So it's like that hopelessness kind of rolls in with helplessness and they have a really unhealthy, horribly, horrible experience of a party, if that makes sense. It's like they take over our brain, they shut out any of the light, any of the good, and they allow us only to see bad. It's a very, very, it's a very dark place to be in a dark way to feel. And so anything that can create that, Anything, especially children, I, I would maybe even argue are could be more susceptible to this just because a, more of their life is out of their control. And I know I've talked about this before, like how control is an illusion, and I still stand by that. But I'm just saying that like we have we don't have a job, can't pay bills, like our resources are more limited, and we have to depend on others to take care of us. We are dependent, right? And I think that that can make it makes us more vulnerable to having this happen. But anything that kind of takes away our hope and makes us feel helpless. Like if we don't feel like there's anything we can do to make things get better, that could lead to it. And I'm happy to talk about this more. So if you have follow-up questions, feel free to ask them for next week, but hopefully that gives you just kind of an idea. Okay. Now question number eight says, Hey Katie, if a client asked you if you experienced any counter-transference with them or what feelings came up for you during session with them, would you be honest? I noticed that when talking about my child abuse, my therapist took a very deep breath. I could be reading too much into it. And I wonder what she may have been experiencing herself. I plan on asking her, but do you think a therapist would be honest in their answer or would it all depend on the impact the answer could have on the client? She's very upfront about being transparent with me and not deceiving me at all. And I know she will probably want to discuss why this is important to me. Yes, right now, I'm not sure why your thoughts on this would also be great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for your channel. In hearing what you tell others, I now feel confident in asking my therapist directly most of the questions I would usually want to ask you instead. That's wonderful to hear. I love that because you should be able to ask your therapist. That's what they're there for. And we're not so scary. So to answer this question about countertransference, I, I wouldn't probably, it's not that I wouldn't be honest. I would be reluctant to give you any information about what came up for me because, and here's the thing, this is not my session. And what I would probably say to you, if you brought this up to me, let's say I was your therapist and we, you know, like kind of role play this out that you said, you know, I noticed when I was talking about my childhood, uh, my childhood abuse, you know, you took a deep breath and I'm just curious what you what you experienced or what that brought up for you. I would probably think for a second and say, it's interesting that you are worried about what I'm feeling and thinking when you're telling me such a, you know, a vote vulnerable part of your life or such a difficult thing to talk about. You know, do you find yourself worrying about other people a lot instead of, you know, allowing yourself the space to feel how you feel? I would bring that up. That would be my main concern slash question because it actually doesn't really matter what I feel unless it's affecting your therapy. So if as a therapist, if I'm telling you a lot about how I feel and what that brought up for me, this is no longer your therapy session. Now this is like our group therapy, which is so unhealthy and the boundaries have been breached and the therapeutic relationship is no longer existent because I'm no longer the therapist and you're no longer the patient. We're both patients and that's not how this should work and that's bad and unethical. So I probably wouldn't tell you. And if I felt like it was impeding or getting in the way of me being a good therapist for you, I may consider, you know, increasing my own therapy or talking to you whether or not you feel I'm an effective therapist and possibly referring you out if you're like, yeah, it's not going well, you know, because then I'd be checking on my own stuff because countertransference technically 
even though we can't help and be human and like, you know, some things my patients tell me are hard and I say, that is hard to hear. I'm so sorry that happened. You know, I have a natural human response, but I should not be reacting out of that and placing that into the therapy session because that not ruins a session, but pretty much. And so, yeah, those are my thoughts because and like you said, would all depend on the impact the answer could have on the client. That's why that wouldn't be something that we would talk about because this isn't my therapy session. If I'm upset about something I heard from you, that's something that I work on on my own that has nothing to do and it has no place in your session. So yeah, that's kind of, that's how I think about it. But I, I don't think it's wrong for you to bring this up with your therapist. And I, I, would probably put money on the fact that she will ask like why that's important to you. And do you find yourself putting other people's feelings and thoughts and reactions ahead of your own? But maybe not. I don't know. But those, those are my thoughts. And also I just want to throw in that it is very normal to con- consider what your therapist is thinking and feeling. Cause it's, it's a very strange thing, the therapeutic relationship, right? It's a weird play. Uh, thing to do where you go in to a situation with someone else and you don't really ask them how they're doing. You don't really know anything about them and they know more about you than anybody else in your life. That's very strange. And so it's normal for us to want to like glean from them other things or know more about them. But just trust me when I tell you that the less you know, actually the better the therapy will be for you because it helps keep it about you and give you the space to say what you feel and think without worrying about judgment or knowing that they probably won't agree or any of that stuff. Cool? Cool. Okay, question number nine says, Hi, Katie, I hope you're doing wonderful. My question for you has to do with journaling. Ooh, I love it. When you read a client's journal, do you feel like you're invading their privacy? Or do you think it's, uh, it's fun to get all the insider information? Also, is it important for clients to share their journal with you? I journal a lot and I think a a lot of it is probably really unimportant, but I would be curious to see what someone would think if they read it. I am not in therapy because it's a very scary step, but one day if I can get enough courage, I would. You got this. I know you can. Reach out. We're not that scary. I promise. Um, When I don't really read my clients' journals, just FYI, I've never asked them to just like give, I guess they've left it with me because some of my patients don't like like loose leaf in a binder. So they want like an actual journal that's like, you know, like a mole skin, like sealed up. So I have, I have had a few patients leave that journal with me, but I only read the pages that they have like allowed me to read or told me to read. I don't just go reading through. And also I don't really read my clients' journals very often. I'll check homework and ask them about the homework and have them read it to me. Like I, a lot of my patients will bring in their journals with them at every session and I'll ask about like, okay, so last week, you know, I wanted you to track these few thoughts. Can you tell me what you came up with? And they'll flip through and be like, okay, this is what I did, blah, blah, blah. And so I use that kind of as a way to to help and to ensure that that they're doing the homework and that things are okay. And if they have trouble sharing something with me and they're like, I just really want you to read this. Like I did have a patient tell me um, after, this is like a year ago now, but after Christmas vacation, she was like, I I wrote a lot of things about my family and it's really hard for me to talk about them. She had a real hang up around like not wanting to make her family look bad, even to me. And so she's like, could you just read these pages? And I was like, sure, will you, uh, I gave her some post-it notes and I was like, will you just put a post note at the beginning of where you want me to read and the end of where you want me to read? And so I read it, um, you know, before our next session, and then we talked about it. So those are kind of the things that I do, but I don't, I don't just read them because I want the journal to always feel like a safe place for my patients. I don't want them to think that I'm going to someday just ask to read. I feel like that is kind of an invasion of privacy and I want it to be a useful tool. I don't want it to be cleansed of anything that they wouldn't want me to read. Does that make sense? I want it to be a safe place. And so I only ask when it comes to homework or if they're having a tough time talking about something, I will offer to read it. But I don't know if I've ever explicitly said like, hey, can I read the last few days of your journal? I've never said that. I'll say like, hey, do you have that homework that we talked about last week or two weeks ago? How did that go? And sometimes they write it down in their journal some, or, you know, if I ever have them like 
you know, even I'm trying to think of anything we do. Everything is, if I needed to see something or wanted to have something, then I've given it to them, like an assessment. I'll take that back after they filled it out. Or if it's a safety plan that we put together, I have them sign it and I keep it in their file. So there isn't really anything that I would need to read in a journal unless they wanted me to. Okay. Question number 10, final question says, hi, Katie, I know you don't do much therapy with teens or people under the age of 18, but I would still like to hear your answer to this question. You say that people have to be willing to get better and want to put in the effort, but what would you do if a parent requested an appointment for a minor and, and they weren't willing to put in the effort? Like if they don't want to get better, but their parent or guardian wants them to thank you for everything you do. You really make the world a better place. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm so glad you feel that way. So this is a great question. And there were some comments about uh, where someone said like, you know, their sister had bulimia and the parents were trying to put them into treatment, but they didn't want to get better. So they just had never gotten better. And I've seen that time and time and time again. And the truth is I would see the patient for a little bit until I recognized that they didn't want to put in the effort. And sometimes I even had a patient back in the day, if you guys don't know, I worked at, what was it called? The CIFC, the Center for Individual and Family Counseling. It's in North Hollywood in Los Angeles. I worked there. It was one of my first therapy jobs before I went to the Eating Disorder Treatment Center. And great clinic, really great resource. If you're in the Los Angeles area, they offer free and and low cost therapy. I think most of my patients paid like 20 bucks or 10 bucks or something. So it's a great resource. Um, anyways, when I was there, I did also get a lot of court mandated people, which comes with its own kind of tricky situations and stuff. It's like one of them was a child and she was super excited. She was like nine or 10 years old. She was one of my first patients ever. And I even wrote about her a little bit in my book that will come out this September. Um, but anyway, she's great. And that was court mandated because it was part of like her mom's issues and things that were going on. So that's how I got to see her first. And then I also, um, you know, had a patient who was part of a gang and had been like in not prison, but at a camp, they call it, it was like Camp David or something um, for, you know, like when you're underage, they don't always put you in like prison. They put you in like these detention centers, they call them. Anyway, so he was in a juvenile detention center, was mandated to see me and had no interest in being there. Now he had to see me for a certain number of sessions. So he just sometimes would sit in silence. It was really uncomfortable. However, that's a different case because he had to come and it was just getting through them and ended up actually, he ended up opening up and I thought we did a, as much work as he was going to allow us to do together, which was fine. So if it was just a private patient and the parent brought them in, I would see them. And once I realized that they didn't really want to put in the effort or get better, I would have the parents come in the next session and we would talk about it with the patient there. I'd be honest. I'd talk to the patient ahead of time and let them know what I'm going to say and how, you know, what my thoughts are. And often in those situations, the parents need therapy just as much as their child does because they don't know how to process what's happening and they don't know how to deal with it. And they just want someone else to kind of like fix the problem. And I don't mean that in like a bad way, like, oh, the parents are doing bad things because they're not. It's more along the lines of helping them understand that you can't just make someone get better. That's not how things work. Even as a therapist, I can't do that. And you know, that's just part of it. And we have to have that want, we have to, you know, have to put in the effort to get better. And if we don't, we won't. And so explaining that to parents and teaching them about it, and also helping them understand their own role and encouraging them to get their own therapy would be my goal. And that would be in a session that I would probably have them come in and make an appointment, you know, with the minor and everything, as we talked about it so that they could understand. And hopefully they get it. That's, that's really, you know, that's really what I would do because I would not personally, I would not continue to see that minor if they don't want to come in. Trying to force someone into therapy to try to, it's hard enough for people who are motivated to get them to do the work. Can we all be honest? Therapy work is hard work. And so it's really difficult to get anybody to do it. If we don't have any urge or desire to get better, we're not going to do that work. So therapy essentially is a waste of time and money. And as, as someone who has been in therapy forever and ever and ever, I don't want to 
like I'd feel bad taking those parents' money. Like I'd feel bad having them pay for it. I'd feel bad for making that patient sit with me for an hour every week when they don't want to be here. I would give some pushback. I would challenge the patient a little bit. That's why I said I'd see them for a little bit. Um, you know, because like, why did your parents bring you here? And what, how does this make you feel to be here? And see if they'll open up a little bit because sometimes that can be beneficial. And even if they came in not being willing, they might open up and be become willing. You just never know. So you give it a trial. But after that, that's really what I would do because it's not going to help anyone for them to feel forced. And sometimes even those stupid, some like children are super stubborn. And just because their parents want them to, they refuse. I had one of my close friends, my roommate in college, um, my freshman year, her parents had gone through a really wicked divorce. And she was like 14 or 13 at the time. And she said, yeah, and they put me in with the stupid therapist and I had to go. And I, I would just lie. I would just lie to that therapist. And then I, and then, you know, I would just tell conflicting stories and see if they even paid attention. And it was just all this like game. And as a therapist now, it kind of makes me giggle because I'm like, that's why it sucks when you force kids because they're not interested and they don't want to. And it's just, it, it can be a complete waste of time and money. So I would assess for that, talk with the parents, talk with the minor, and we'd make the best decision. But usually if they're not want, willing, what what's it worth? You know, it's not worth anybody's time. Hopefully they felt connected enough to me that when they do want to work on it, they'll reach out. You know, I always kind of hope for that too. give them a card and hope for the best. Um, yeah. That's it. Thank you all so much for listening. Like I said, please share this podcast. Please give it a review. That's really incredibly helpful. And don't forget next Monday to leave your questions in the community tab of my podcast channel. That's where I will gather them. Have a wonderful week and I will see you soon. Bye. Or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.